The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today we're going to be talking about Mason Bates and Mark Camel's opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, which opens this weekend, May 6th, at the Capitol Theater. Uh, Utah Opera is really excited to present this opera, which is definitely not... You know, if you want to say your grandpa's opera, your grandma's opera, this is something it's an it's a horse of a different color. We historically in opera don't have a long tradition of biographical operas. There's a few things based on stories along the way. You know, we have historical figures like Giulio Cesare, Julius Caesar who appear, but we don't have a lot of modern stories. It's just uh, we've got a few operas based on rip from the headlines type stories. For instance, Yenufa of Janacek is based on an actual story of a scandal in a small village. And then Verismo operas uh, like Cavalleria Rusticana and I Pagliacci are also based on headline stories at the time. So this phenomenon of bio opera is kind of recent. Yeah, another word for it, Carol, might be tabloid opera, really. And it's because we're talking about people who are either alive now or were just recently alive, as you say. And yeah, though there aren't exact parallels in the 19th century or earlier, it's something that in the 20th century, certainly the latter half and the 21st century, has become pretty popular. I wrote an article about this for the program book talking about considering contemporary celebrity through opera. And I just want to quickly run through a couple of examples because I think they're interesting and illustrative of how we got to this place. So Tom Addis did one in 1995 called Powder Her Face about the um, Duchess of Argyle, Margaret Campbell. There's very a Jerry, scandalous. Yes, indeed. Very scandalous. There's a Jerry Springer, the opera. There's an opera about Muammar Gaddafi. There's an opera quite famously by Mark Anthony Turnage about Anna Nicole that's gotten a few productions. There's Marilyn Monroe, Malcolm X, Oliver Sacks, all kinds of people from our own time that are being specifically captured in the operatic setting with their own name, not as a sand in for some sort of larger concept. Revolution of Steve Jobs, I think, grows out of that tradition. He's not so much a tabloid character like Anna Nicole Smith or like Jerry Springer, certainly. Rest in peace, by the way. As we record, he just passed away. Um but he does certainly come from that tradition of telling these stories from a more vernacular perspective, by which I mean, not from a novel, not from a historical document. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking you also you didn't mention one of my favorite bio operas, Nixon in China. Yeah, which true. really kind of was the the original in this genre, if we want to yeah, call it a genre, uh, you know, and the challenges of presenting someone that was 1987. So it wasn't so it was only 15 years after Nixon's re resignation and um, the challenge of presenting actual historical characters that have we know what they looked like. You know, do you want to make a. An exact caricature, do you I mean, do you want to make a car caricature, do you want someone to be an impersonator? I mean, how do you do these things? It's really kind of a fascinating deep dive if you start thinking about how to cast it and make it look like the people or do you even try? Not only do we know what they looked like, we know what they sounded like, we know what they said, we literally know everything about them. And you and I talked off mic about Don Giovanni and how, though that's not about somebody, anyone in that audience knew specifically, 
everybody has a Don Juan from their past or their life that they can say, oh yeah, I know a person exactly like that. And you even mentioned how DePonte, apparently uh, the librettist, uh, traveled in the same circles as Casanova. And there must have been some of that in that, in that script for sure. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a new phenomenon. It's something that is, I think, here to stay in opera, don't you? Yeah. You know, I think, there's a real interest in writing operas that have resonance with the modern audience. And one of the simplest ways to make that connection is to write an opera about a person that resonates with everyone's sensibilities. Yeah. Everyone has a feeling about Steve Jobs, unless, you know, they're a child that was born after 2011. You know, we've interviewed both Mason Bates and Mark Campbell on this podcast. I'm not sure if anyone listening to this episode has heard those yet. If you haven't, I definitely suggest you do so. They're both great discussions. But one of the things Mason mentioned to us, Carol, is that, and this makes me think he might possibly object to the idea of his opera as tabloid opera. He really thinks of it as an opera about creatives, of which there are many examples in the history of the art form, right? Sure. He even suggested or uh, cited in uh, the Tales of Hoffman, the character of Hoffman is a poet. In La Boheme, the four men that are uh, the, the driving force in that opera, uh, or one of the driving forces, are poet, philosopher, painter, musician. Death in Venice is about an author. And then I wanted to throw into that mix Little Women, because the central character is Josephine March, who really is trying to find her writer's voice. So I think he would think he thinks more towards the creative idea that we're creating, we're making an opera about a creative. It just happens to be an actual human that existed. And it's technology that he's using as his platform for his creativity, but it was every, every bit a world builder as the rest. Yeah. And that Mason cites that that was an obvious choice for him in a way, because he grew, he was living in the Bay area at the time and still is living in the Bay area. And so um, the Silicon Valley, Figures like Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. Uh, we had not have an opera about Bill Gates yet, but those were all part of the daily consciousness of that area. Well, let's let's talk about the team a little bit more. We've we've mentioned Mason. Talk about Mark Campbell and his history in this art form. I mean, he is. We mentioned DePonte, and we can mention all these famous librettists. Mark's name is going to be mentioned with them someday. Yeah, you know, he's not going to be mentioned in the same way as DePonte is being completely associated with a particular composer. He's actually really, along with Gene Shear, I think they're the go-to librettists of our time. Mark has written 39 libretti, I believe, and the subjects are incredibly diverse. Uh, we have Steve Jobs, but we also have Silent Night, which is about the Christmas truce of 1914 that Utah Opera presented in January of 2020. And then he's written a libretto to The Shining. He's written a libretto called As One, which is, it's a one character show, not a one person show. Uh, a one character show accompanied by string quartet about um, the journey of a transgender sing uh, human. And so um, his subjects are incredibly diverse. They're comedic at times. Even the serious operas have moments of creativity and, and comedy to just kind of mitigate the, the drama, I suppose. He even said when he talked to us on the podcast that he believes that um, adding some comedy in there makes the very heartfelt emotional moments more powerful. Don't you find it interesting, Carol, when we get someone like Mark on the podcast and we try to get him, we try to trick him into saying something incredibly wise and memorable that we can, you know, put up on the wall. 
when we talk about method and what motivates him and what what it takes for him to bring these people to life and he just says things to us like well it starts with the heart or i i just want to write things that people want to sing it's really so simple isn't it I and mean, mark brings that across it really is a very basic human thing he's communicating well, I'm sure that's why so many composers connect with his work to team up with him. And then so many companies and audiences love what he presents and produces. And then to go on the other side, you know, Mark has this huge resume of, of opera libretti. And then we have Mason, who is um, a very well-established composer, but Steve Jobs was his first opera and is so far his only at this point. He has a big commission that will be presented in 2025 at the Metropolitan Opera, but uh, that's still in the works. So it's kind of um, the two sides of the coin with experience in this art form. Well, back to the piece itself. So it's premiered in 2017 at the Santa Fe Opera. You were there. What was that like? I was there. You know, it was, I didn't play the show, so I wasn't assigned to the show. So I was kind of, I was Steve Jobs adjacent, if you will. But it was always interesting to walk by their rehearsal space. Santa Fe Opera's rehearsal spaces are all outdoors. And so you can sort of, on your way to one place, walk by another rehearsal space. It can be really sort of overwhelming when uh, you have Wagner and Verdi rehearsing all at the same time because they clash in the middle of the 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 area, the sound, the sound waves. But um, seeing them work with the electronics in the rehearsal, they had the guitarist, there's a huge guitar part, and they had the guitarist in rehearsal all the way through. And so uh, I didn't see the piece until a bit into its run. And so I got to see it when it had had some time to just season with the cast. And just, it was a different production, but really a spectacular production. And they definitely leaned into the technological aspects when creating the production, huge amounts of projections and the same thing for our, our production that we're doing, which is the second production that's been created. Uh, you know, a, a great cast. They obviously, you know, did the, I mean, Steve Jobs has to wear the iconic Issey Miyake mock turtleneck. Of course. It's just, you can't do the show without it. You can't put Steve Jobs on the stage. It's not even about him anymore. I mentioned in my article that when you ask someone to think of a modern day tech maestro, that's what they see in their head doesn't right. even have to be his face. That's the uniform. And then I really discovered that the music was incredibly accessible and dynamic and um, full of motor driven rhythms. It's just uh, really an energetic music. And that makes sense because Steve Jobs was a force in tech. You couldn't have it's actually really interesting. His music has a huge amount of energy. I'm getting ahead of us on our, our little informal outline, which you all can't see, but um, <laughs> his music has this motor rhythm. It's driven, it's energetic. It has lots of electronics in it. And then you contrast that with um, his uh, wife of 20 years, Lorraine Powell jobs and her music is much more kind of um, grounded. It's oceanic is the way Mason describes it with these undulating kind of jazz arpeggios. And so it really makes a interesting, and effective contrast to have those two musical styles juxtaposed. Well, since you're skipping ahead, let's just talk about this. You're talking about leitmotif, which is the idea of taking musical phrases or snippets to represent characters or themes in a piece. It's something Wagner made famous. It's something he essentially coined as a composer. And Mason unapologetically uses this as part of his technique as well. And he talked to us about that. And you just mentioned a couple of those examples. Are there others? Are there other things that people can sort of latch on to as character representations in this piece? Sure. You know, um, the other woman in Steve Jobs' life that we 
highlight in the opera is Chris Ann Brennan, who was um, his first significant relationship and the mother of his first child, Lisa Brennan Jobs. And Chris Ann was someone he met in high school and they had an on and off, on again, off again relationship for a number of years, you know, prior to Lisa's birth. And of course, there's different views of the truth of their fiery relationship. What did Steve really, how did he really react when he found out that that Chris Ann was pregnant? But they were hippies together. They spent time on an apple commune. I mean, they were, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was um, doing his early explorations into Zen Buddhism. They were experimenting with drugs, with LSD. There's a big scene with LSD. So um, Chris Ann is definitely, you know, a, a stereotypical hippie of, of the time. And she's also got a kind of flighty energy to contrast with the grounding of Laureen. And so her music is full of these twittery scales and arpeggios in the winds and in the piano and the harp. So she was, his, it's like, yeah, twittery is the best way to describe it. Just um, not very bass grounded, not a lot of low frequencies to pull the music down and, and solidify it. And so it's very obvious when she comes onto the scene, it's a whole different sound world that you get. And then you get, Steve Wozniak, who was um, the co-founder of Apple with Steve Jobs. And of course, they had a falling out later on. And his music is super jazzy. Every time I hear the pianist practicing certain parts in the orchestra, there's a big piano part. It, I think, Bernstein. So it's got that kind of um, West Side Story um, syncopation and energy in it. It demands an actual operatic tenor, and you'll see why, because he's got this amazing aria kind of about two-thirds of the way through. But um, I think those are like the main sound worlds that come in mind. And then there's um, Kobun Chino Otagawa, who is the his uh, Steve Jobs Zen Buddhist uh, spiritual advisor throughout. And Kobun actually... Our operatic Cobain takes Steve on a journey. It's a little bit like uh, the ghost of Christmas past, showing Steve how things went and helping him come to terms with his mortality. Or, you know, you can make the case that he's actually already deceased at the beginning of the opera and we're just sort of revisiting everything that happened. And he's got a um, a lot of synthesized sounds to kind of show that his thoughts are not necessarily grounded in everyday events, but his presence in there is on a different level than the relationships that we see throughout. I definitely want to talk about the electronica, but you hinted about the structure of this. And as I recall, Powder Her Face is, it's told from the perspective of Margaret later in life, remembering things about her past. And this um, this piece, Revolution of Steve Jobs, also has an interesting structure, sort of an out of time structure, right? Where things are happening, not necessarily in temporal order. Can you talk about how it's constructed this, this story? Well, it's bookended by Steve's 10th birthday, where his adoptive father, Paul Jobs, uh, gifted him with a workbench. And this was an incredible, uh, Paul Jobs was an incredible part, uh, influence on Steve's love of design and beauty and elegance in design so because his, his father was a mechanic and worked with his hands and sort of taught steve to understand that so those are the two bookending moments this this birthday in 1965 and then we sort of spiral through and bounce from you know the the launch of the iphone which we can't call the iphone in the opera because trademark we call it the <laughs> one device and yeah. then we we bounce then back to the chrisanne days and then the first meeting with Lorene. it's really almost like a spiral where you kind of 
work your way to the middle section of the opera, which is based on 1981 to 86, where Steve uh, kind of... Um, almost lost control of Apple and was fired and um, a huge moment. And, and in this opera, they make it kind of a watershed moment for him where he had to really, it was like pre Apple firing, pre and post Apple firing. So it's, it's kind of a spirally circle. You can't precisely call it a, a certain elliptical shape, but one of the images that's very important in the Zen Buddhist moments is this idea of an Enso, which is a kind of partially, not quite completed circle done with a Japanese character. And uh, that's kind of the over, you can always make that the theme of the opera is this not quite completed circle of his life. I do think it's important to mention that this is biography. It's not autobiography, by which I mean, it's not sanctioned by Apple. This isn't a product of theirs. This is very, this is very much something that's happening outside of his corporate Identity. We have language in all of our published materials to make sure that people know that this is not sanctioned or sponsored by the Jobs estate, the Jobs family, uh, Apple, any of that. So we never mention there are a lot of apples carried around on stage <laughs> <laughs> to make the point. Yeah. But uh, we don't ever say the word Apple. We don't say the word iPhone. We do not say there's a place where they refer to the big M meaning Microsoft. So mm -hmm. the major players, uh, trademark names are not ever shared but if you know something about tech which we all know enough to to we can extrapolate this isn't even tech anymore this is culture it's this so much a part of our lives absolutely one of the things that we found kind of amazing is when we were premiering this when it was premiered in 2017 i don't remember if, i was talking to someone i don't remember who really figured this out but it was we realized we were only 10 years after the introduction of the iphone and everyone was astounded at the fact that it was only 10 years because we felt like we'd been living with these incredibly complex and contradictory devices for decades. And it well, really had only been 10 years. Carol, this is a this is, I think, a fact of of human thinking about history. We back read all the time. Imagine yourself in high school right now. Is there not a cell phone in your pocket? Of course there is. I remember having them always. I it's hard for me to imagine a time when they didn't exist. I know people say this all the time, but it's literally a, a truth in our brains and the way we look back on our lives. Well, I, I don't associate a cell phone with my high school years because they were quite a bit before yours. But um, but oh no no we're 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 pretty close you and I. But I do remember <laughs> my of, first cell phone. It was one of those folding yeah. bricks with the antenna you had to slide out. Oh yeah, the texting you had to do, push all the buttons to get to the letter you wanted. Well, and I, I was in my thirties when those came out. So I definitely remember them too, but yeah, we're, we're a couple of oldsters here talking about the old days, but the, um, but really it's a very cool podcast. Please listen to us. Yeah. Please keep listening. We're, we're, we're cool. I promise. But speaking of cool, there's a lot of tech in the score as well. It's not just being discussed. It's actually being employed by the orchestra. I just did in quotes. And rather than just sit there and watch like you had to do in 2017, Carol, you are intimately involved with the sound sampling and the electronica in this one. I am in the middle of the weeds. I am right in the center. I have the best seat for the conductor. And, uh, you know, Mason has always, he's a DJ as well as a composer. And he's always used electronics in the majority of his pieces. I shouldn't say always. He uses electronics in the majority of his pieces. I have not done a deep dive into his entire output to know if there are exceptions, but it's definitely part of his musical language. And it makes 
of course, absolute sense when you're doing an opera about a tech magnet. You have to have this. And that's why it's um, a synthesizer part that's pretty involved through the first, I would say, half to two thirds of the opera. Then as Steve really, the character is really circling in on his mortality and his relationship with Laureen, the tech presence really drops out. And that's because they're encountering each other on a very human level. And Laureen's trying to help Steve retain or regain his focus on his humanity and not be distracted by all these technological things that have, um, you know, been such a part of his life. So there's um, long moments where there are patches of, um, we call them patches. Those are the, the chunks of sound that have been created. Some are like dance beats, like literally. (laughs) Some of them are um, musical moments that maybe are too difficult for instruments to play at that speed. Although the saxophones have to, to uh, double some of that. And I'm pretty impressed with what they're doing. Saxophones in opera. That doesn't happen always either. That is unique for sure. And then some of the beats that he's created actually involve computer sounds. So things like boot up sounds, Uh, shutdown sounds, scanner sounds, things that are, and they're sounds from old tech. They're not sounds from modern tech. I mean, we just stopped short of a dial-up, an AOL dial-up moment. Uh, And one of the really fun uses, one of the most fun uses of the tech, um, Jobs and Woz invented back in the 70s, what was called the blue box. And it was a device that enabled, it recreated the touch tones of a touch tone phone kids do you remember those and therefore (laughs) they were able to recreate it and they were able to steal um long distance and kind of it was part of their their counterculture i'm going to stick it to major corporations and so this way they were they were evading ma bell and her her um hold on things and they actually do this is a true story they actually did use this box to hack into calling the vatican and they almost got to the pope uh, in the opera they fictionalize it to have him get to the Pope on this call. That being said, uh, throughout this, there's uh, imitations of touch tone phone sounds and other bleepity bleep little um, technological sounds that are as they're working on this little gadget. And it's if they didn't have that, you would just have such a less vivid view of what's happening at that moment. And, you know, not to take too much away from your participation, but some people might think that you're actually performing all of these bits, but you're really just cueing them, right? They're preloaded in their entirety, or is there is there a mix of the two? There's a mix. There's a mix. There's some long cues. For instance, during the product launch, there's these very active sixteenth um, note cues, and I just push a button and it plays like push a button. I mean, it's more comp. I have to follow a score, right? <laughs> and and do musical things, yeah. but um, that that might go on for ten bars or four bars, and then I'd go to the next cue. Um, it's really helpful to have them in smaller sections, just in case something happens and we need to, you know, make some sort of adjustment. We are not stuck into that. But then there are our long sections of thirty or forty bars where the conductor has to lock into the beat that my triggers have created. But when you get to things like the Waz scene that I'm talking about, those are actually musical cues that I have to play on the keyboard. And they're like individual sounds, one key, one sound, as opposed to one key, all the sounds. Well, 
I'm sure it's impressive to be near you while you're doing it, because I'm sure there's a lot of incredible anxiety happening in your part well, of the I'm, pit. And I'm clear, I'm, I'm confident that nobody in the orchestra is paying attention to what I'm doing, except for the conductor, because everyone is working their... They've got their off. own stuff to worry it's, about, yeah. Uh, it is a very technically demanding opera. It's shorter opera than what we usually do. It's one act, it's more like the length of Zalame, maybe even mm-hmm. shorter, mm-hmm. but um, it's nonstop. There are well, no some- places where you get to phone it in. Well, and the audience doesn't get to do that either. And sometimes contemporary opera is hard for an audience to find their footing in, I know. So are there some musical moments or little touch points that people should watch out for, things that they that they can anchor themselves to that happen in this story? Well, Mark and Mason have both done a really great job of pacing. So they give they create these sounds that these scenes that have huge amounts of energy, and then they contrast that immediately with something where the the audience gets to relax a little bit. So looking at the product launch that I've mentioned to the one device, two thousand seven, that is everything. It's it's all the video popping on and off. There's video screens everywhere. There's um, the whole cast is on stage. Uh, the whole ensemble. It's a small chorus, but still, they're very active throughout. Uh, And Steve is singing a real vocal tour de force, all this energy in the orchestra. And then as soon as the product lunch happens, we have a big shutdown sound from the uh, 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 kind of a subwoof, uh, what do you call it, like a sub-bass slide. Mm -hmm. And then we get to this scene with this very intimate between Laureen and Steve immediately after the product lunch where she's concerned about his health because he was um, diagnosed diagnosed in, I think, 2003. So by 2007, he was in the middle of his pancreatic cancer, which eventually um, took his life. So we get to relax after this energy of a Broadway opening number with a big papal ending and a button, the whole bit. Then we get to relax into this scene until the next high energy moment. So it's a really great pace. Uh, love, I love the LSD trip that he takes with Chris Ann because the, ryth- the rhythm as he's trying to take in the feelings that the drug is bringing to him and the, the altered consciousness, you have this rhythmic uh, vagueness where he's just trying to get a handle on things. And there's actually some fun quotes throughout of the Bach prelude in C major from the Welter Clavier volume one. And then there's actually a hidden Easter egg. It drove me crazy. There's actually a quote from the fugue for that same prelude and fugue, a C major, that comes into um, Steve's big aria about, um, he kind of has this big aria where he equates uh, the, the effect that technology has on our life to the effect that music can have. Yeah, it's really kind of an amazing moment. If there were intermission, it would happen after that because it's such a a big, powerful moment in his um, journey, in the character's journey. Connections between Bach and technology are we're not the first people to observe that. That's been happening for a long time. Bach and math is a long time. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I already mentioned too the electronics. You know, they have their place in the beginning, but then as we get to closer to really facing Steve's mortality and his relationships they kind of drop out and there's a whole chunk where it's like scene 13 through 17. And these are quite short scenes, but there's a whole chunk where I'm not involved at all until the final note. Is that really obvious sonically? Will the audience be able to pick up on the fact that that's missing or, I, you know, I, I think they, I think it just, cause it took me a while to sort of yeah. catch on when I was listening and learning the opera. I think that you just, you, you don't notice the gradual shelving of the electronics you just get drawn into the relationships i think that's the thing that is great about mason's use of the electronics is they're not obvious and gratuitous they're actually mm-hmm. very interwoven into the story and very interwoven into the texture of the music 
Well, this choice to drop them out was obvious as well. It's light motif on a macro scale. I mean, he's trying to use that as a story beat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all of those moments, Carol, sound incredibly compelling. And I think this story as a whole is going to be incredibly compelling. And one of the things that I'm so proud of Utah Opera for taking this project on for is that I think this piece shows what a modern opera house is capable of. The modern opera house can do things that De Ponte and Mozart would have never been able to dream of with projections, with electronics, with, you know, not to overuse a word, technology. And I think it's really exciting to see not just what opera is, but what it can and will be. That to me is one of the great things about this piece and others like it. And a great argument for the continuing devotional allegiance to living opera. Now you're playing this one. You're in the pit. It's not just Carol, the expert. It's Carol, the performer. So when you stand up and take your bow and you look out into the audience, what do you want to see out there? What kind of audience are you hoping will be looking back? Well, you know, first of all, I want to say thank you for mentioning the Utah Opera connection to and commitment to presenting new works. We know we do have this commitment to especially highlighting the works of living American composers and librettists. And so I hope that I'll see our regular audience members, our longtime subscribers, really leading into the operatic nature of a familiar figure being like, no, this is a a, a heroic character with a fatal flaw, which is what every good drama needs. And, um, you know, it's incredibly done. And then also look at our company stretching themselves and showing uh, a production that's really unlike anything we've put on the stage before. And then I hope that new people are going to see opera about Steve Jobs. I need to see what that's about. I hope that they'll come in and and then they'll see that the experience of coming to an opera is so wonderful. And it, it gives you a, an escape for a few minutes, just as much as, a, you know, a Broadway show or a film does. And that they'll understand that um, opera is accessible in a way that maybe they didn't realize it was. This is the kind of piece, Carol, that pop culture folks can maybe allow themselves to be just a little bit Venn diagrammed into the opera folks crowd. And I think that's such a cool benefit to this kind of programming. And I'm really excited to see where Utah Opera goes with this initiative next. Well, give us the stats, Carol. What's your work schedule like for the next couple of weeks? How can people oh see gosh. it? It's Revolution Steve Jobs all the time. We open on Saturday night, May 6th, and we run for uh, every other day for five performances. Our final production is on Mother's Day. So take your mother to brunch and then bring her to an opera where she can see the art form like she maybe never has imagined that it would be done. But Carol, you're leaving something out. Isn't there something special about opening night for people who choose that performance? Well, besides the excitement of seeing the show in its final form for the first time, being the, the original adopters, both Mason and Mark will be at opening night and they are going to join our anyone who wants to come in the Capitol room for a post-performance Q&A. So it's your chance, if you're there on opening night, to hear these kind of things that we've shared, but hear it straight from the horse's mouth. That's amazing. Well, Carol, thank you once again for being our expert. I love love, love talking about opera with you. And thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances like The Revolution of Steve Jobs. And we hope to see you at one of those productions in the next couple of weeks. Until next time on the show, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thank you for listening. 
The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation. <laughs>